Yo, is this seat taken? Uh, yeah, it is. This week, the seat is taken by Kasira Hill. She is a hospitality professional, anthropologist, third of Radical Exchange. She's also the content creator for Radical Exchange and one of my very good friends. Hi. Hi. Glad to be here. We're in your bedroom. Yes. Really great. <laughs> really glad to be in my bedroom, but in a different context. Yeah. Not sleeping or having sex or organizing my clothes. <laughs> You're like, I'm actually doing things right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, um, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. Of course. On the fly. Of course. I came over and ate pie, and we figured out after a while what we are going to talk about. So, yeah, yeah. let's get into it. Uh, so we decided we wanted to talk about, um, like, historical context and what that means when we're, you know, traveling to or consuming different cultures yeah um, which is a very like broad topic but we came about this topic mainly because especially in America um, the way that history is taught to us is in like through a very white lens like you'll like learn about history like from America United States of America but not really much southern and central America and you'll learn history from like Europe and Britain and all of those places, but there's like so much out there that for whatever reason, they didn't find it to be very um, important to teach us history of all the other cultures growing up through academics. So we wanted to talk about that. Yeah. And how that like relates to what we're doing now, because we work in food and beverage, and we are consuming, like, food and beverage from all these other cultures and countries and cities and places and things, and I feel like often it's kind of, like, looked over. It's like, oh, you know, this white chef is opening, like, a concept that's, like, 30% Latin American inspired, and then the rest is just American, but it's like, okay, well, what does that really mean, and how are you paying homage, actually, how are you respecting it, and yeah. Yeah. We I could talk about so much with this. <laughs> I know. It's it's really such a broad topic when you, when you start talking about the way that you consume culture. One, because the context of which you consume culture is really based on your own background. Like when you, when I rather was in um, school and, and I took this very interesting um, anthropological theory class that was pretty much just a class that was like, when you ask questions, how are you asking those questions? What context are you asking those questions? Because we all come from our own backgrounds, our own experiences, and those very much so inform the way that we, one, yes, ask questions, but also the way that we consume the culture around us or consume the variety of cultures around us. So it is a super broad topic. And um, I, I like to keep it broad because I didn't yeah. necessarily like prepare anything for us to like 
you know, really delve into. Like I, <laughs> we did this episode on the fly. I rolled out of bed and brought my equipment over here. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, just short of having an actual lecture prepared um, yeah. about something necessarily, you know, specific, I think, um, especially as a food and beverage person, especially as someone coming from an academic background where uh, there's a lot of critique on, one, the way that we write about cultures, the way that we investigate and um, and kind of take interest in different cultures around us, but also the way that I'm interacting with a variety of stuff thrown at me as a food and beverage person. Um, you know, we're sitting at the forefront of a lot of different human interactions. And, mm-hmm. you know, as an anthropologist, I have come to realize, and it's funny that it took me a little bit of time, but I thought about it so separately, you know, the academic sense, and then mm-hmm. my my work life, my daily work life, um, when you're someone that's working in hospitality, food, beverage, etc., you're at the forefront of human interaction, and human interaction um, is very much so what anthropology is. Like, anthropology is literally just the studies of the why, when, and how humans do what they do, um, so it's nice that we're keeping it kind of broad, but it's also really interesting to bring this, um, this topic up because it kind of represents a, a track that I didn't see myself on when I first, you know, got to Chicago and, yeah. you know, migrated out of academia and, um, you know, found my place in the beverage industry. I didn't necessarily immediately think that these two things were going to, um, to intersect the way yeah. that they did. Um, like I said, because I had thought in them thought of of uh, ethnography, the way that we think about culture, the way that we think about um, you know human development, et cetera, et cetera, very separately than the way that I think about the work that I'm doing, mm-hmm. you know, being in hospitality and stuff yeah. and those things really are one and the same. Yeah. So um, yeah, I'm glad that we're talking about it. It very yeah. much so represents kind of this arc that I've been on and being like, you know, the the histories that I've learned and where I'm coming from the academic sense have very much so melded with the work that I'm doing in beverage or the work that I'm doing in hospitality or the work that I'm doing um, with, uh, you know, radical exchange or what have you. So totally. um, I find a lot of interest in that. And I think the more that we can bring history and, and, and a little bit of context to how we move and groove, um, as hospitality, hospitality people, (laughs) um, I think is, is only going to do us better. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, obviously it's a really broad topic and I think one of the main reasons why I wanted to bring this up is because one of the main takeaways that I took away from Resistance Served was how, um, like, there's not a lot of history from other countries that are taught to us in academia. And one of the reasons why I was thinking about that is because I learned Ant Resistance Serve that at one point in time, the, what was it, like 90% of yeah. Jamaica's uh, population was, like, wiped off the island. And I was like, I had no idea that that even happened. And I was, like, thinking about it. I was like, man, there's so much history that I don't know about. And now I'm just, like, eager and hungry and, like, wanting to, you know, like, be like SpongeBob and soak all of, like, all of it in, you know. So 
Yeah, I think, um, and to speak what you're talking about, um, Ali is referring to a history that's very rarely told to us um, in the kind of narrative of the colonization of America is Mm -hmm. that the first settlers, the first colonizers, the first um, folks that just did some just widespread genocide rolled through uh, the islands uh, of Jamaica, what we now know as Jamaica, Mm -hmm. and et cetera, um, you know, Trinidad, Tobago, uh, Haiti, and et cetera. Um, There were indigenous folks on those islands before, you know, Columbus landed, before the folks before Columbus landed. And I think there's a lot of, um, I won't get into it, but there's a lot of, you know, historical discussions about who landed where and when and how, because um, in history there has been some notes that, you know, the Spanish or the Portuguese or the Europeans were not the first people to land um, on those islands. There is some argument around, um, you know, Japanese, Chinese um, sailors that landed in the Americas, but we're not going to get into that. Um, That's a topic for another day. (laughs) (laughs) That is a topic for another day, and it is disputed, so it's like we don't want to, we don't want to make any definite, definite um, statements about that. But when it comes to the history of the, of the islands of America, especially, we're not told that the indigenous population, um, 90, 95% of those indigenous folks, Tainos is um, one of the names attributed to these indigenous peoples, were mm-hmm. wiped out um, by the first colonizers. And that's an interesting history that, in a broad sense, right, speaks to the lack of stuff that we're taught. And I think that, you know, saying that there's so many histories that we that we aren't taught is is inaccurate, but also um, a generally like broad statement. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, most of our most of our history classes in middle school and in high school center around, um, you know, white uh, English, French uh, colonizers in the Americas, Spanish mm-hmm. colonizers in the Americas, mm-hmm. and then Western civilization, which was absolutely a class that I had in high mm-hmm. school, literally yeah. just Western Civ. And totally. it was just kind of a regurgitation of, um, you know, European history. It covered the UK, it covered a little bit of Ireland, but not too much, uh-huh. um, a little bit of France. A little bit of Germany, all the kind of like major Western civilization superpowers, and not necessarily anything else. So, your experience with being like, oh snap, yeah, this is something that I didn't actually know, and you know, how do I how do I navigate the context that I um, look at, yeah. And, and yeah, in in consumption of of Jamaican culture, of Creolized culture, and when I talk about Creolization, I don't mean just Creole people, the word creolization or um, the creolization of cultures, like an anthropological term, meaning that there are a variety of cultures coming in, melding and creating something new, um, mm. which is absolutely the case, right? In Jamaica, you have um, African diaspora folks, you have Spanish, you have English, you have folks rolling through on all varieties of ships and yeah. very much so, you know, uh, motivated by the sugar plantation kind of, um, the word is escaping me now, but that, that industry. Yeah. Um, that, that boom. That boom. Yeah. Right. Sugar, um, 
cane, sugar, and rum being a huge commodity. Mm-hmm. Cotton later on, but um, on mainland America, but uh, those things being really tangible and really involved in the culture that we now understand, uh, especially the islands. I'm not going to speak to every single one because, like I said, I don't have all the histories right in front of me. Yeah. But um, I experienced something very similar to that um, when I, a couple years back, when I was chatting with someone from Honduras and I didn't realize to an extent that there was an indigenous population in Honduras that one obviously had been wiped out, what we now know as Honduras, right? Yeah. Central America. Uh-huh. Um, but there's a new indigenous, new quote unquote, indigenous population um, claiming indigeneity in Honduras that um, are folks of the African diaspora, folks that have been in Honduras for, you know, 300 plus three, 300 plus years and are now like we are an indigenous population of Honduras and Mm -hmm. they all look like me they are of African diaspora descent Mm -hmm. so they are um black quote-unquote black I try not to use very much because it is a social construct what Mm -hmm. we understand is blackness black in America is is a culture is an identity but when you transfer that to other places, um, it's not the same. It's not the same. Yeah, exactly. So I was chatting with someone um, from Honduras talking about their family and their indigenous family, and they showed me some photos and et cetera, et cetera. And I caught myself, one, being kind of um, in this American mindset of not getting those histories. But yeah. I was like, these folks are black. Yeah. What's up with that? Yeah. Like, and and... And catching myself, I didn't express it, but catching myself and having to reteach myself or, or you know, however you put it, um, about reframing what I saw as black, what I, mm-hmm. reframing what I saw as indigenous, reframing the history and the context of Honduras, Central America, yeah. and how that produces itself in its culture. So these folks that are claiming indigeneity, the Garifuna people in Honduras, um, like I said, are of African diaspora descent, and they have their own culture. They have their own expression of what Americans would see as blackness. Um, and I thought that was really fucking cool. Yeah. Um, it's and, like yeah. it's like you have to almost. Uh-huh. It's like you have to uncenter yourself as a black African American to like understand that it's like well the history that I was taught about like, my history coming mm-hmm. to America and, you know, that lineage is completely different than, like, you know, these people in Honduras. And, right. You know. Um, so in, in, like, a broad sense, when you start unpacking, excuse me, when you start unpacking um, especially the histories of, of colonized lands and mm-hmm. the histories of, inco- of uh, colonized peoples, people that have experienced colonization, um, those histories are, are interesting and complex and nuanced. And, Mm -hmm. um, it really plays into how you as an individual or as us as a culture kind of consumes that culture, right? Like totally us as an American, we see, we see blackness, we see black culture, and I take pride in the identity that I have as a black person, as a black woman. Um, and then that means so many different things when I look at different histories, when I look at different lands, when I look at different um, 
you know, cultures that have come also from African diaspora um, uh, sources, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think it's just, like, really interesting that, like, yes, there's, like, many different, like, expressions of people, Mm -hmm. like, all over this world. Yeah. And... um, If you don't have the history... Yeah. If you don't have the history behind a land, attached to a land, um, attached to a variety of peoples that live on that land. It's hard to get the full picture when you go and you, you know, consume food and consume beverage and interact with cultures without that full context, or at least, um, some air of that context Uh speaking, speaking to someone, you know, in the United States that got only Western Civ and mm-hmm. have had to delve into on my own time or in, you know, uh, what do you call it, higher education, yeah. learning about the complex histories um, that has been, it's it's been interesting to see the way that that manifests in the way that I then consume culture. Like, I, we were talking about Portugal mm-hmm. earlier. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't say that I forget, but I often do not include the Portuguese in my contextual understanding of colonizers. The Portuguese are a major factor. Yeah. Um, The Portuguese continue to bring slaves into, or enslaved Africans, rather, into Brazil Mm -hmm. way beyond anything coming to North and Central America. Like, they went on to, like, something disturbing, like, 1876 or something, bringing in enslaved Africans um, to Brazil. So, (laughs) with, I had to re-remind myself when I went to Portugal that, one, this is a country of colonizers. Mm -hmm. Um, Two, this is also a port town. Yeah. So... You know, how does that play into the things that I'm eating and consuming? Uh-huh. And when I dig something out of the ground as an archaeologist, what does that mean? Like, am I getting something Grecian? Am I getting something that's traveled by boat totally. that was then landed here? Am I getting something that uh, that is brought from Africa to Portugal and then taken over? Um, yeah. Totally. So I went to Portugal for field school. Yeah. In the summer of 2018. Yeah, Yeah, 2018. That was like right after I met you. Yeah, I uh, at the time was the assistant general manager at Lost Lake, and I was considering what credentials I needed to get into grad school. Uh huh. And a big part of me re-sparking my interest in anthropology, in archaeology, and human evolution, et cetera, et cetera, was field school. So field school is going somewhere um, and basically, you know, doing whatever work, especially as an archaeologist, doing that work, digging things out of the ground, learning the procedure of um, archaeological studies in the field. So mm-hmm. going somewhere and really fucking doing it. Yeah. Um. I went to Portugal, and I was there to study uh, the last traces of Neanderthal, Homo Neanderthalis species in Portugal. Mm. On the tip of Portugal, it's the most western point of Europe where I was. 
Um, it like juts out this a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, Portugal is right next to Spain. It's like that little yep. conglomerate mm-hmm. right between uh, North Africa and Europe. Uh-huh. And I was there to do field school, but I was also kind of there in the culture anthropologist in me, not just the archaeological anthropologist in me, was there to look at how Portugal as one, a colonizer, to mm-hmm. a port town kind of manifested its identity as a, as a, as a country, as a culture, as something that used to be Spain yeah. for a period of time that they uh-huh. don't really love to talk about. They're yeah. very adamantly not Spain. Totally. Um, but it was interesting being there because, like I said, I often don't include the Portuguese in the list of colonizers mm-hmm. that I understand of the North Americas because they were central. They were central to um, South America colonization and and Brazil and and uh, Peru and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So when I went there, I had to kind of reframe the way that I thought about Portugal, the way that I thought about the food and the beverage and the massive amount of port and wine. I don't love port. <laughs> But really? it's too sweet. Mm. It's too sweet for me. I like a good port after dinner sometimes. I just imagine the port bottle, like the big <laughs> bottom-heavy port bottle with, yeah. like, the wicker basket, like, attached to the bottle. Anyways, um, <laughs> it was really interesting to kind of resituate what I thought of Portugal and the, the things that I know about Portugal and its history and kind of... Uh, consume that in the way that I was drinking and eating and hanging mm-hmm. out with folks and the histories that people tell me. And, you know, uh, when you go to the museums, they've got things from the Mughal Empire, which the Mughal Empire was in India. They've got things from, you know, Grecian and Mesopotamia. Like, uh, yeah, I had to just resituate the histories because I don't think that Portugal is often included in my own experience, often included in that kind of like colonizer narrative Mm -hmm. um, because it wasn't necessarily prevalent in North America. Yeah. To to the extent of the the, Spanish and and the the Europeans and the French, etc. It's like we learned about the colonizers that came here. Yeah. But we don't learn about the colonizers that went to other places. Exactly. There's colonizers all around the world. I mean, let's not even get into... China and Japan and Korea and the relationship with those superpowers (laughs) in Southeast Asia, right? That's another discussion for another day. Or the United States and the Philippines. (laughs) Yes. That's that's that. Yeah. Okay. You want to do the first segment? Yes. Death meal. Death meal? Yeah. So if you knew you were going to... Yes, I knew that. Yes, I knew that. My death meal... Um... It's two things. Just two. It's just two things. Okay. What yeah. is it? It's very simple. It's um, a really big ass bowl of pho. Okay. Pho che, which is vegetarian pho. Mm-hmm. Um, big ass bowl of pho. I love some pho. And a smorgasbord of um, rather a veggie platter. An okay. Ethiopian veggie platter. Okay. Injera with like spicy lentils mm. and cabbage and everything. It's it's so Seattle of me, but like Seattle has a huge population of um, first and second generation East Africans and okay. first and second generation um, Vietnamese folks, among other sure. Asian folks. But um, 
I ate a lot of Vietnamese food and I ate a lot of Ethiopian food. So being vegetarian, vegan, yeah, prime time, prime, prime time. time, yeah, <laughs> lots of tofu, lots of tofu, mm-hmm. all the tofu. Anything to drink? Definitely something to drink. Um, a Jamaican rum daiquiri. That's just like a twenty-four ounce Jamaican rum daiquiri. A twenty-four ounce. Just put it in a bucket. Just put it in a bucket. Give me like a split base of Ray and Nephew and Smith and Cross. Mm. And yeah. just, like, KO me out. <laughs> You're like, I'm going to die. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do? I'm going to die. It's great. I've got my pho. I've got my veggie platter from the Ethiopian joint. And I've got my 24-ounce of Jamaican split base daiquiri. I love that. Hell yeah. Mm, now I want a daiquiri. Daiquiris are so good. I know. Yeah, so let's just, like, bring it back to the topic of discussion. And I think it would be cool to talk about, like, we were just talking about this, actually. <laughs> New, innovative ways to um, consume different cultures. Um, without, yeah. You know, obviously being like a culture vulture. Because that's not cute. Don't do that. <laughs> no. I don't know what a culture vulture is. You don't know is. what a culture vulture is? No. Kim Kardashian. So you mean someone that... Um, someone that, like, like... Are you talking about a white woman that wants to be black? Or are you talking about a culture I, vulture of, like, yeah. seeing something that is Not culturally very, relevant for, a, a like, a ethnically-based culture? Yeah. And then just taking that and being, like... This is mine. This is mine now? Yeah, it's, like, it's like cultural appropriation, but it's also, like, I'm gonna... I, I like that, so I want it, and I'm gonna... Be yes. a vulture about it. I'm like, Kh. yes. That's not the sound that vultures make, but you get. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, ah! like I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah, I need a producer for moments like this. Like, hey, what does a vulture sound like? <laughs> yeah, just press the button and it's like a vulture sound. <laughs> Love that. Season two coming at you. <laughs> um, we've got a soundboard. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, I think I am really inspired, and I'm. I really take pride in other folks, or I take pride is like a weird way to phrase it, but I am really inspired and I am really grateful and thankful and see the folks out there that have looked for new and innovative ways to, like we said, consume culture, to present culture, to circle that back into the work that we do as hospitality folks. I think especially with... um, so many people owning their narratives mm-hmm. in food and beverage. Yeah. So many people using their own, with their own fruition, expressing heritage and history and, and things that they appreciate about maybe about their own experiences or mm-hmm. their um, cultural experiences. I think it's been really awesome. And I'm going to just use the easiest, not the easiest, but the most relevant on the top of my head right now, um, the honeysuckle pop-up dinner that we had um, at Resistance Served. Chef Omar Tate with honeysuckle pop-up being very much so, and he's got um, an article on The Eater, I believe. Okay. Uh, A couple of articles, but the most recent one, either on Punch or The Eater, I think Eater, um, about expressing and 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 uh, delving into 
why he started Honeysuckle and how it's very much so attached to his own kind of self-expression of his heritage and his mm-hmm. um, re-spark of, of motivation and interest in the food world, recircling back to, he, t- he took a break from, you know, the food industry for a moment. There was his expression of, of him stepping away from being a chef or mm-hmm. being in that industry, feeling really overworked and tired and, and finding inspiration in telling his own story in food. And um, with the honeysuckle pop-up, I don't want to speak on behalf of him, but yeah. with the honeysuckle pop-up, it was incredibly inspiring um, to see that dinner series go on and, and especially seeing it in person at Resistance Served. Um being a part of that, him expressing his own narrative through food, his own identity through food, Mm -hmm. black history and black culture through food was incredible. Yeah. And I'm seeing, there are people that have been doing this work for a long ass time, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's not like this is a brand new new thing. thing. It's not a brand new thing. I'm just speaking from the perspective of myself seeing these things um, Your own kind of experience. come right. Yeah. My own experience in um, in in my investment in in history and my investment in food and seeing how folks have taken their own investment in those industries and brought new beautiful context to them and told their stories through food in a way that um, centers black folks, centers Mm -hmm. POC folks, centers, um, you know, queer and uh, the broad alternative identities of the full spectrum of LGBTQ plus. Yeah. Um, Through food and through beverage, I'm fucking here for it. and I'm here for the brands that support um, creators that make this content. And I use the word creators really intentionally because not everyone is a chef, not everyone is a cook, not everyone is, you know, a beverage consultant or a yeah. bartender. It's kind yeah. of like you can you can assume these roles to tell a story just like I can paint something um, to tell a story and I'm not necessarily classified as a painter. Totally. Um, so all of these really awesome food beverage um, creators, hospitality creators, um, that are telling these really cool stories. And yeah. I am motivated by the things that I'm seeing. I'm motivated by more and more folks that I'm close to mm-hmm. creating stuff around me that is nuanced and immersive and you know innovative i think it's fucking lit yeah totally like the flip side of it is like how are like other ways that we can like be better consumers like when it comes to you know like rum like how are you paying like homage to like that very long in honestly like dark history when you're consuming it and that's just like one example of many but that's the first thing that like popped into my mind you know what I mean and I think I think if we start being more intentional consumers it would make for like a better world you know what I'm saying instead of just like I mean especially in I can speak from my experience living in the America 
like there's so in many, the America. In, in, <laughs> I was about to say the United States of America, but I was like, okay, let's just say America. Um, there's so many things that we like do and consume that are so like unintentional. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, yeah, we're so like go go go, like get things done like super duper fast, and like hardly do we ever like take a step back to like breathe for one and two. Like, okay, what am I actually doing here? Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think if you just, like, take some steps back and be, like, even more intentional of what you're trying to do and what you're trying to consume and how you, like, walk and navigate through different spaces of cultures, like, that's, like, another way to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think um, the question of how do we, how do we better consume culture in a respectful, um, well-contextualized way I think is a really good question I think you know people have writers and um food beverage and hospitality folks that are working to create these events brands that are situating themselves next to creators that are trying to make new ways to consume culture in a way that's thoughtful and respectful and um all of that, I think that first and foremost, it's really beautiful when a story can come from that person. Mm-hmm. Like, And I mean that in the way that I don't need to see an award-winning soul food restaurant being awarded you know, giving, being given credentials to a person that established the restaurant that is white. Yes. As a very broad example. I'm glad that's where you were going with that because, like, yeah, that's, like, another thing we should definitely touch on. You know, it's, like, how many fucking white people do you know that own restaurants that don't even belong to their own culture? Right. Cough, that new one that just opened in Bucktown. It's a Chinese restaurant owned by two white men. Yes. Yes. And, you know, it's like... We can talk about, like, cultural appropriation. We can talk about all of that. But I think it's really unique to have a conversation about how we consume that culture. Yeah. Because by me making a choice to go to a restaurant that may employ some folks that are of that culture, that identify with that food, that identify with the shit that they're cooking, I'm here for that. I'd rather them have that credential than have the the owner or the face of of the restaurant or the business or whatever. Exactly. So I think when it comes to how do we intentionally consume cultures, I think it's fucking putting our dollars to the folks that, you know, may not have the biggest platforms, that may not have the you know, the James Beard or the Tales of the Cocktail yeah. award-winning bar program, but um, putting our dollars towards the folks that are telling their own stories. Yes. And supporting folks that want to tell their own stories. Yeah. If I live in the hood and I want to open up a bar and I want that bar to cater to my community. I want that bar to be relevant for my community. I, community, I want that bar to express the shit that I like to drink, the shit that I've seen my family drink, the shit that I've seen, you know, my grandma prepare in the kitchen, you know, when she's, you know, cooking up something on the fly and she wants to make herself a little cocktail. Mm-hmm. Um, I think putting our dollars towards that. Like, yeah. And it's, it's literally... It's literally that easy, one. Two, it's also as easy as circling back to the restaurants and critiquing why we go there. Yeah. 
am I going to this restaurant because it's, a, you know, a, in my neighborhood and it is the food that I like, but also who's the owner and who's the backer and who's getting mm-hmm. the money and are the employees well represented and all of that. Those totally. are hard questions and, and, you know, takes effort to, to delve into those things, but. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I think first and foremost, consuming culture and thoughtfully and intentionally consuming culture means giving the dollars that we spend to the folks that are telling their own stories. Yes. We did it. We nailed it. <laughs> I feel like I just want that to be like <laughs> that on a um, t-shirt. I'm not the first one to say it. Okay. <laughs> I'm not the first one to say I it. I know. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> Let's um, do the next segment. Yes. Guilty pleasure drink. Guilty pleasure drink? Yeah. So it could be like a drink that has like a certain stigma around it or just like a drink that's not that healthy for you. Or like... I thought for a moment that I was going to say something with vodka in it, but vodka is trash. So like that's not my guilty pleasure drink. Well, I mean, it could be because <laughs> vodka is trash. So it could yeah, be your guilty pleasure. <laughs> um, I think my guilty pleasure drink is definitely something with um, heavy whipping cream and egg and or egg mm. or a full egg like a flip like a flip a flip were you there i made us a flip at my white elephant party right? yeah mm. and it was fire it was good um i think a flip is definitely my guilty pleasure yes. um but also i feel very kind of rewarded with that because yeah i don't really eat eggs very much and i recognize the protein in eggs you're like i'd rather drink it in a cocktail so i'd rather <laughs> put it in a cocktail it's like a good and bad guilty pleasure okay. it's like a eggs are gross and i don't eat them but there's protein in eggs and not a lot of carbs so like gotcha i'll take a flip i had a really delicious kind of um like spicy mexican chocolate hot cocoa kind of flip Ooh, that, that was amazing. really fire what was that at it was something on the winter menu last year at Violet. Oh, cute. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think secondary to a flip sure. is a hot buttered rum mm. hot cocktail. Yeah. At Lost Lake like two years ago. Yeah. Yep. There was this thing that Fred did where he like made these absurd sticks of butter that were just like whipped butter and cinnamon and some other ingredients I don't remember but I had all these flavors in the butter you'd melt the butter with hot water yeah and then you'd stir in the rum the yeah. rum and everything else that went in the cocktail and that shit was like you knew that shit was like fire fire yeah but it was like 500 calories worth of butter like yeah. <laughs> in a santa mug it's for like, a sip in santa and I was just like this shit this is why People that live in cold areas in the wintertime get winter weight because... Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're not going to drink that stuff in the summer, obviously. No. Like, you don't want a hot cocktail or, like, a flip. A flip is, like, a winter drink. It's like, too heavy. It's way... Yeah. yeah. It's, like, you Winter want, is like, for the flips and the buttered, hot buttered rum cocktails. Yeah. And summer is for the patio pounders and things over crushed ice and that you have to drink fast. And spritzes. And yeah, and like spritzes. Yeah. Or low ABV things. Or just sparkling water. Or just like any, whatever you need, anything. Yeah. Low key, I think I might drink more in the summer than I do in the winter. I think I drink more in the summertime because like I'm feeling myself. Yeah, exactly. June is my birthday, and every day after that continues to be my birthday. <laughs> so that's how I am with May. I'm like mid May. It's not even warm yet, and I'm just gonna drink until it's warm. I don't care. <laughs> 
it's patio season somewhere, so I'm going to be out and showing my buns and shaking my ass and drinking some drinking some patio pounders. Awesome. <laughs> Let's uh, talk about Resistance Served, Radical Exchange. Yeah. Let's talk about it. We just Let's came back it. from that, like, uh, well, you got back only last week, but. <laughs> yeah. It was like two weeks ago. Resistance Served, um, flagship event of Radical Exchange, four-day food, beverage, and hospitality conference. It was so fun. It was really emotional. It was equal parts like fun, rewarding, um, educational, and emotional. Yeah. I would say those are like the four words to describe my experience there. Fun, rewarding, educational, and emotional. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I think that that definitely encompasses it. Um, this year, it was really interesting this year. We expanded our programming from three and a half days-ish to four and a half days, um, or four days, full four days. Mm -hmm. Um, so that meant more context, more events, um, more people. Um, we, and I say we as Ashton, Eric... And I, mm-hmm. um, this year was really awesome for us. Uh, being the visual curator for Radical Exchange means that I communicate the unique and creative and challenging things that Ashton uh, curates for Resistance Served, kind of working with community members, coming up with panels, coming up kind of with essentially what we're going to break down and learn. And um, seeing her process and and working to visually and, and on social media and digital platforms communicate that has been a one-of-a-kind experience. And I think this being our second year, mm-hmm. With uh, more attendees and more days and mm-hmm. all of that. Yeah. Um, more scholarship. More learn. scholarship yeah. folks. Like, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. My goodness. <laughs> uh, at Resistance Serve, we have a scholarship program that essentially um, we work with brands and um, donatees, donators, mm-hmm. uh, to ensure that we can open up space at our conference for a spectrum of hospitality, food and beverage folks, um, to get access to that. You know, conferences cost a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Going out of town for someone that's in the hospitality industry costs a lot of money because yeah. I'm probably not going to get my Saturday and Friday shift in, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so working with brands to make sure that uh, a variety of folks are able to attend despite whatever restrictions they might have at home life, whether it be travel restrictions or um, financial restrictions or what have you. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really beautiful. And amongst the community of people that receive scholarships, it's one of the most beautiful things to witness because so many of the the scholarship folks um, become like a little tight-knit family. Yeah. We had uh, St. Michelle Wine Estates sponsor 10 up-and-coming wine um, industry professionals to come, and they had their scholarship house. Last year, in 2019, we had Mezcal Tabsa Tospa. 
I'm mispronouncing it, um, uh, Matthew Powell spearheading uh, a scholarship house. And it's really unique to kind of see those folks create a relationship amongst their group and, and see those relationships last through the year. Yeah. Um, as someone that manages the digital platforms, especially um, Instagram, I see a lot of folks like reposting and meeting up together and being yeah. like, oh, it's a resistance surf, like yeah. reunion. Yeah. And seeing all that makes me really happy because Aww. if it came down to me, you know, spending $1,000 in all to go somewhere for an event, I, I would really have to weigh that out. So mm-hmm. I think it's really important and really unique that we're able to work with brands to make sure that folks that are interested, that folks that find this um, this content important are able to attend. Yeah. It's fucking expensive to travel. Yeah. And it's expensive to buy tickets for a conference that, you know, are upwards in the hundreds. Yeah. It is. <laughs> I make a joke when... when um, Beyond resistance, sir, but when when uh, folks ask me, like, oh, are you going to go to this? Are you going to go to that? And I, I, in passing, make a joke, like, I'm not going to go until they pay me. Because mm-hmm. it's like, I don't have the time. Or the money. Or the money. Yeah. To totally. be buying into a conference. And I, and I say it jokingly, but I absolutely respect that about um, our industry. Because we're working for tips, bro. And if I'm not there making tips... Mm-hmm. I don't know what my income is going to be. It's quite yeah. volatile. Yeah. Um, but yeah, all in all, Resistance served. Uh, this is our second year. It was really beautiful to see it kind of expand and see a lot of our sponsors come back um, from the first year. We had Patron doing our symposium day for the second year. Mm-hmm. We had Beam Centauri and a couple of their portfolios, Cavassier and, and Maker's Mark um, with us. Cavassier being the addition, but Maker's Mark being the, the second year. Last year, they did our... Um, dinner with Carla Hall and mm-hmm. uh, Miss Leah Chase mm-hmm. and uh, rest in power to Miss Leah Chase. Very, very unique and awe-inspiring experience. Mm-hmm. Um, having them back with us and uh, William Grant and Sons for our closing party. Fire. Mm-hmm. Fun. Uh, with the Soul Rebels. But, um, yeah. Coming back from Resistance Served, I share the sentiment of our attendees that express kind of you're coming back having been so held by your community at an event being so around and as as a black woman being around so many other black women in the industry that you don't see all in a room together fucking never never very 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 barely like at resistance serve like that's it i was amazed i was like oh Wow, this is beautiful. I had never been in a room filled with that many black women in my life. I yeah. was like, this is amazing. Resistance served is like, I swear to God, like 85% black women. And yeah. that is yeah, that's, fire. Yeah, it's super fire. <laughs> 85% black women in food, beverage, hospitality, writers, historians, yeah. like it's, curators. Like it, it just gave me the chills just like talking about it. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Support black women. Yes. 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 <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm like holding up my fist being like, yes. <laughs> um, coming, coming back from that space, coming back from that space at Resistance Served um, and having to like reground myself, get situated back in Chicago and, and get settled has definitely been an experience. But I am ever thankful for the space held by the attendees at Resistance Served. 
Um, ever thankful for our sponsors that made it happen. Mm-hmm. It takes the coin. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah, and and this being our second year, uh, you know, events happen, one-off events happen, and there's 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 no issue with just a single event happening and kind of resituating doing something next um, the following year. But the fact that Resistance Served has sustained and we will continue to sustain Resistance Served as a really crucial event for our community, I think it's really yeah. lovely to see that. I'm excited to see it grow in the upcoming years. Yeah. I'll always be there. I will also be there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Um, okay, let's get into this last segment. Uh, high thoughts. Should I go smoke some weed? No. (laughs) (laughs) Just whatever, like, high, silly thoughts you've had lately. Oh, I have high anthropology thoughts. Yeah. Let's talk about them. I have thoughts, like, um, I have thoughts, like, there's a theory in anthropology and there's a theory in human evolution. It's called the out of Africa theory. And that theory is very much so associated with, um, or very much so is founded in the idea that each genesis of a new species of Homo, or before then, mm-hmm. um, Homo being a genus of, we're Homo sapiens sapiens, right? Mm-hmm. So when I say Homo, I mean everything that falls under that genus. We're talking about like Homo erectus, Homo neanderthalus, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, each one of those species evolving in and around Africa yeah. and then branching out to populate the rest of the planet. Yeah. Um, my high thought often when I'm presented with new information about human history is whether or not those little pockets of like, you know, you see articles that are like this little skeleton of a human was found in indonesia and it's like two feet tall like what's going on with that and i think about like did that really happen in africa and then migrate out are there just little pockets of little human beings that are like evolving in trees and in forests that are like isolated (laughs) and they're just like gradually dying off or like you know what i mean like they're just little random pockets of people like on an island that you know we like don't get exposure to or like cave people in uh the aztec or like Mayan area, yeah. and kind of like the crazy, like tying that into like weird ancient alien theories and technologies <laughs> and random shit. I'm constantly thinking about stuff um, like that. I'm constantly thinking about <laughs> weird avant-garde theories that are be beyond the out of out of out of Africa theory um, when it comes to like these random findings. I love like, that. Like in history, like I'm That's always so like so funny. Like, people will pull up things being like, why is this, why is this uh, ancient structure literally perfectly symmetrical to, like, the T? And why did we find this human remain that was, you know, unlike any other human remain we've ever found? And I'm just like, what? Uh, what is going on with that? Did they... 
Is this a mutation? Did they grow up in a tree? Is there a little <laughs> population pocket of like some little miniature humans? Like That's funny. not miniature humans as in like little people. Like literally a different genetic species. That's so funny. <laughs> I love it. Problematic for a moment, sorry. Um, no, it's good. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's definitely my high thought. Anything that is like a new piece of history, a new piece of like evolutionary theory, mm-hmm. me like piecing that into like, how did that happen? Yeah. Why are we getting these random spurts of technology or random, you know, uh, archaeological findings of a man that was eight and a half feet tall in Sweden that doesn't fit any genetic thesis of, Mm. you know, human evolution. Mm -hmm. Very long-winded high thought. Yeah. It has to do with so many different things. Totally. I'm um, into it. It could be narrowed down to just, like, pyramid theories. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Okay. You want to answer some DMs? Sure. Are there DMs? Yeah, I didn't get that many. Um, The first question is... Uh, you have a lot of repertoire uh, with different resumes. What is your favorite? That was weird of weird. Worded weird, but... I have, a, I have a lot of rapport with different, like, brand resumes. Yeah. yeah. Like, my favorite brand no, that like, I've worked with? Y- no, what, like, is your favorite... I think what they were asking, what, what is your favorite, like job that you do oh shit because um, you have like hospitality. oh yeah you have like uh you know yeah i i'm i have like media. a lot of fingers in different puddings yeah yeah i think um damn i think because i've reached a point in my life where i'm feeling really inspired um to revisit the potential of getting my PhD mm-hmm. right now I am most inspired by the anthropologist in me okay and I think I say that because not because I am not inspired by food not because I'm not inspired by beverage or you know my work at the bar or my work in events I think that anthropology as a study, anthropology as um, something that you could institute into any part of your life, whether it be like reading or the things that you look at or how you look at them or the way that we consume culture, mm-hmm. I think anthropology is kind of is where my head is at Would right you? now. Yeah. yeah. The anthropologist in me is like, yes, 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 yes. I want to I wanna learn more. Gotcha. Into it. Um, this next question is, what is your favorite popsicle flavor? Oh, you already know it's like those natural, uh, those natural thin dick popsicles that come in the single packaging, but it's like a box and it'll be like a blackberry (laughs) or a strawberry mix. I don't know. Mix? I don't know. What? Okay. Natural popsicles, right? Like fresh fruit popsicles. Yeah. Um, yeah. Blackberry or some kind of like dark berry popsicle. Okay. Yes. That's my favorite popsicle flavor. (laughs) If you were an animal, what would you be? These questions are so silly. (laughs) I'm here for it. Yeah. (laughs) If I was an animal, what would I be? I used to say koala because 
when I was little, I always had like two pigtails, like two pom poms. So I'd have like two kind of like koala kind of esque ears on the top of my head. Um, but I genuinely feel like if I was an animal, I would be um, some kind of marsupial, some kind of like something in a tree, some kind of like monkey with like a a tail. <laughs> A tail. <laughs> yeah, the tail that you use for hands. I forget the term now. Um, gosh, a type of monkey that has a tail that they use as a as an extracurricular like arm, essentially. Yeah. Okay. Monkeys that hang from trees. Yeah. I'm not. I'm like a little skittish, ridiculous monkey. Love it. Ah, like ah! stealing things from people's bags and shit. Oh, like, love that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I ask everyone this question at the end of each episode, but what change do you wish to see in the world or within your industries? Or both. In the world, I would love for... There is a grave issue with how much information we're presented and how... um, How the word is escaping me right now, but like how much we don't fucking give a shit. We get so consumed with so many different tragedies Mm -hmm. and so many different wrongs in the world and all of them being relevant and all of them being terrible. And to that right, I think the way that we are affected by wrongs in the world, I would like to see that change because there is an insensitivity to political wrongs there is an insensitivity to um institutional wrongs um to violence mm-hmm. to genocide to war we just get fucking overloaded with all of this terrible shit yeah. that's happening in the world that will become insensitive to it totally. and i would like to see a way for us to refine our passion in humanity to feel for shit yeah, just be more empathetic. I think it's really hard because in this day and age, but literally in this day and age, mm-hmm. because we're so overloaded with all this information about what's going on around the world, all of it's terrible. Mm-hmm. And it is protecting ourselves and our energy to not, you know, become enveloped in totally. all of the wrongdoings that are happening around the world. But like, God damn it. I've become so insensitive to, like, political shit Yeah. in a way that I feel like my father probably, you know, was sensitive to things in the 80s and the 90s and the injustices and shit because there was so much less being forced down our throat. Right now, our president just got acquitted for literally crimes. Like, he literally also just pardoned a man that is a racist and a terrible person. Yeah. <laughs> but there's so many, there's so many things that we see in the world that we're just insensitive and we're numb and we have to do that as a coping mechanism but I would love to see a way that we can get invested in hardships in wrongdoings around the world and feel for them and change things Mm -hmm. because the more that we get this shit shoved down our throats I really do feel like the the more that we become insensitive yeah I agree with that okay um change in the industry change in the industry change in the industry um just because you've been in the 
I'm just going to say coming from a beverage perspective, mm-hmm. just because you've been in the beverage industry for five plus years does not mean that you're going to be their manager. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. There might be something wrong in your head, actually, but like, <laughs> that's a joke, right? Like, if you've been in the beverage industry for like five plus years, like, there might be something going on in there. Yeah. And I say that as a joke, but yeah. actually there's so many institutional problems in our industry that like... The joke is coming from that you've had to deal with these things and navigate yeah. through these things that there probably is something going on. But um, just because you've been uh, a bartender or a beverage director or a beverage consultant or whatever to the capacity does not mean that you are going to be a great manager. Have Managing I tol- people is... Have I told you this quote that I lay down on people all the time? No. Just because you withstood a toxic work environment the longest does not make you fit to be a good manager i'm waving my hand in affirmation right now yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's yeah. fucking true i've been meaning to turn that into me but like literally like so if you're like I, i'm sorry i'm gonna go off on this because i completely 100 agree with you i think especially from my personal experience in chicago i can't speak to other cities but there is a um what's the word i'm looking for like it's a mess there is a gross um, mistrust put into people that have been in our industry for so long that don't necessarily show signs of being able to manage people appropriately rather than just do their job with, with you know, do their job yeah. well. Just because I can fill out an order and pick up a sheet and check yeah. out a thing and, that's, you know, not take money from the register doesn't mean that I'm going to be great at managing a population of people. Totally. That's not exactly what I was going to say, although I do completely agree with what you're saying. What I was going to say is that there is, like, a mass infection in the industry here in Chicago where, like, you work in a place, it's so toxic, like, your turnover rate is super-duper high, and... The person that's been there for a year, literally, which is the longest time someone's been there because your turnover rate is so high because you're implementing a toxic work environment for whatever uh, layers of toxicity it is, then they promote that person that's been there for a year that has no managerial experience or leadership qualities to them gets promoted to be a manager. And then like it's like this trickle-down effect and trickle-out effect. And mm-hmm. I'm saying trickle-out effect is in like it's spreading in Chicago like wildfire. And honestly, when I started getting deeper into the industry, I started making a list of like top five manager, like worst managers. And it's like it's it's I I can only say from the bottom of my heart that I've had one good manager. One in my I don't know, seven years of working in Chicago. Yeah. Like, I've had some very problematic managers and I've had some really great managers. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's the, the qualifications to be someone in charge of other people in the beverage industry specifically, I think is interestingly low. Yeah. Like it's um problematically low. Mm-hmm. Just like I said, just because you can fill out an order and show up to work on time and answer texts doesn't mean that you should be in charge of taking care of people's concerns yeah. and addressing, you know, um employee to employee issues. Yeah. Um to communicate to people clearly in yeah. an unproblematic way. It's if a I can lot. add one more thing yeah, that I would like to change, it. Jesus Christ. What I would love to also change in that same stroke of managerial 
positions, please, I would love to see managers, people in charge, AGMs, GMs, owners, please don't come in and give direction to your employees when you've had a cocktail. Yes. <laughs> I accidentally did this a couple of times. I am guilty. But like you you sit down, you're down with your, yeah. your managerial shift or whatever. Mm-hmm. You have a drink and then you notice something that you're like, oh, I would love to change that. Now is not the time. I've definitely had that happen. Like like my manager at one of the last places would like come in and get drinks and they'd be like, can you fix that bottle back there? Like it's not facing the right way. I'm like, yes. okay, can you just sit down and have your drink? Yeah. You're not on duty. Right? I don't want to have to do my job and also navigate receiving information from someone that is an authority figure, but it's also... Kicking back and drinking. Yeah. There is nothing wrong with being drunk. There's nothing wrong with drinking. There's nothing wrong with um, being tipsy or whatever state of mind you're in. Uh But as soon as you sit down and have a beverage at the bar, I do not want to have to navigate receiving directional information from you. Yeah. Like, it's quite honestly inappropriate. It it comes with ego. It does. And we don't like that. I don't like that. We're not here for it. No. Okay. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Allie. Thanks, Kasira. It's been such a pleasure. Yes. I'll see you soon. I will also see you very soon. <laughs> As in, we're probably going to hang out all night. <laughs> yeah, like, we're not going to go anywhere. <laughs> all right, bye.